Hello again, maybe. Welcome to the show. My name is Jay Spooner and this is the fifth episode in my attempt to honour, preserve the memory of unlimited theatre and oral history of the company, how we formed, what we did, how we did it, some of it, because 27 years is a long time, right? This episode is a conversation with my co-founder and dear friend Chris Thorpe, whose kitchen we sat down in for a cup of tea while trying to remember how we started out, how the first play he wrote for the company took us all across the world, what does it mean to have a career as a writer, how and why it's so difficult to make new work collaboratively, and he explains beautifully why he wouldn't change a single thing finally offers his advice for anyone starting a company or setting out as a writer now. Welcome to the show. We're glad you could make it. Uh, there's loads of really great moments. I mean, I don't... It just feels like... I mean, what we're going to do, sit around here, tell anecdotes? Well, why not? Do you know what? I was, when I was talking to Paul last night, we were saying, what was good about this conversation was we didn't do the greatest hits. But it was I like, think we what talked... this conversation is, I think we're articulating a reason why you and me don't really work together anymore, <laughs> which is we have fundamentally different ideas about the purpose of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't mean in terms of like what the purpose of human communication is, although I know we've come to blows, not blows, literal blows, but we've definitely, we've differed on that. Like, I remember, like, I... (laughs) A very clear memory I have, and this is almost pre-unlimited, is when the first kind of tentative bit of work we made together, when we were just finishing being students, or we just graduated, there was a kind of reciprocal arrangement, wasn't there, between our university and the university in Spain, and we actually got sent out to a festival of student drama. Mm. And I remember sitting on a... in a, a hotel room in Alicante, and... Like, everyone's sitting around and talking. I can't remember, we were all probably really drunk. But I remember going off on one about how 90% of things that people say, I think are utterly pointless. Do you remember that? I wasn't there. Oh, you weren't there. (laughs) That's weird, because I totally remember you and me. Like, it's exactly the kind of thing that you and me would I mean, it might not have been... Yeah, it might not have been there. That might have been, like, fucking uh, Scarborough. No, 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 no. This was definitely, definitely, I was not in Alicante. I was still studying. Yeah, you were probably still, yeah, because you graduated the year after. Paul and I were trying to, Paul was trying to remember. That was you, Liz, Paul, Claire, Dave Wolf, Nicky Smith. Dave Dave Wolf and Nicky Smith, yeah. But anyway, so when we were in Alicante that time. When we were in Alicante that time. (laughs) You clearly remember. Because it's exactly the kind (laughs) of argument that you and me would have had. What was it? Oh, it was just, I just basically, I was being a dick, I think. Well, sure, we were probably both <laughs> being dicks. No, 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 but you weren't there, so you can't have been a dick. <laughs> I've made myself a dick I in a was, conversation I, I wasn't part of. conversation that you, that you, you went, started this. I've remembered. Anyway, so in this conversation. I mean, to be honest, I've remembered myself. As, <laughs> I think we were just sitting around talking. We were just sitting around talking, and I got a bit frustrated with the fact that I, I basically said... I was, must have been 19 or 20 at the time. I think I was being a bit of a fucking wind-up merchant. Bit of, bit of, an, bit of an edgelord, as that I'm sure they would call that kind of person now. Yeah, I was like, what are we even talking about? Why are we even talking about this? Why is 90% of what people say just so 
I was basically being really utilitarian about like, why don't people just talk when it's necessary? Why, why do we have so much necessary talking? Why can't we just sit in silence? Making yourself sound like a lot less fun than you. (laughs) (laughs) But it really put a spanner in. Everyone shut up. Yeah, exactly. It really put a spanner in the evening. But the but the reasonable thing to respond to that with is like, and I don't think like that anymore. But the re- the reasonable thing, well, I probably do actually a little bit. But the the reasonable, which is why I'm just like, why do we have to tell stories? Um, the Point reasonable, to me, the writer, the storyteller. <laughs> why do we have to do it? It's a good question. Uh, we tell stories to ask. We, well, you don't tell stories. Do you? you tell stories about why you tell stories? I think that's a much more interesting thing to tell mm. stories about. But anyway, it was looking at the mechanics of the frameworks of the structures of the conversation rather than just the content of the conversation. Mm. And I, I remember there was a particular point that I did that and absolutely put a spanner in the works of a whole evening. And then ended up with, you know, everyone coming back at me with, like, people communicate because it's, it's fun and they like to communicate with each other. And yes, of course, sometimes the content of what is being communicated is unnecessary, but... Let's go back to the thing that you started that with, which was that how was an we're fundamentally different in the ways in the that we that you weren't, you, <laughs> you weren't even that there. we approach making work. Because I think that's a really interesting thing. So, for example, is it useful to talk about that in the context of what I think of as the last time that we tried to collaboratively make a show together in a meaningful way, which was the noise with you, me, and Claire. We tried to write a script all together and it was at that point I think all of us realised that it's too difficult now for us to find a way to make work together, to share the creation of the work because we've all got to a place where we're experienced enough, old enough, clear enough in who we are as artists to not be able to compromise for someone else anymore. I don't think I knew that at the time but that's how I sort of unpacked because that was a really hard process, I thought. Yeah, it was a really hard process. I think probably for the reasons you described, and I think one of the reasons it was hard and the reasons one of the reasons it was in that situation you described is that we we maybe hadn't ever... We never really formalised the process of writing together because no. it wasn't ever something that we did. I mean, it started off with me and Claire being the ones who wrote stuff down, even if mm. it was coming from devising processes. And then, you know, me and Claire both... That kind of made us into writers, and then, well, whether we liked it or not, that was what we did. And then, so even though we we would work together and devise together and come up with ideas together and have these long, long, interminable conversations about what we what we what we thought the show sh- should be and what we thought they should contain, ultimately, you know, we never really developed a set of rules or skills for writing to, to for being writers together, and. We'd never really quite squared that circle of how to transition from that kind of creative space of we're all kicking around ideas that we don't own, that are ours, that are communally owned, and we're making communally together. Um, How to handle that transition into, like, well, someone's got to make a creative decision about what this this is going to be. I mean, whether it's fixed or not, we all have to have a shared idea of what the framework is that we're operating within. So so what are the rules of that? How do we do that? Mm. And I think if you haven't done that, you haven't transferred that sense of collective creative ownership into the act of writing, then you can't really write together. And I also think you're right. You know, we'd all developed our different practices and that was happening at a time when 
certainly for me and Claire, you know, for years we'd been we'd had our own identities as writers mm. uh, outside, and then a performer as well. In my case, outside of the company. Well, I wonder if that's part of it as well that we've never, I don't think, fully spoken about, which is how that change in the company happened. So the premise for the company when it started was that there was equal shared ownership of the work, the company, running the company, that everyone it was everyone was equal, everyone received got the same amount of money. We divvied out different responsibilities according to different people's specialisms or interests and whatever. But at some stage, and I can't remember how where it's happened, I think it's because it got to a stage where we weren't we couldn't afford to run a company at that level. We'd all got to a place where we'd begun to need certain basic stuff. I stayed in the company essentially full-time. Liz was the company manager and that was after Lou had left so this was then you and Claire became freelancers like basically projects with the company and that's when you're talking about sort of developing as a writer but I wonder if we sort of lost touch with each other as artists in that way so we stopped having those conversations yeah yeah I think very much you know me and Claire were out in the world doing our thing we were part of the company but also very much had identities outside of it and it's very difficult to be part of something and not part of something at the same time because the mm. expectation of the people who are part of it all the time, quite reasonably, is that you're, that whatever we were doing was kind of an offshoot of the centrality of our membership of the company. But that's mm. not how our lives were structured. The company was a thing that was part of a whole... I mean, I'm not speaking for Claire, this is just for me, but the company was thing that was part of my... the whole range of things that I was doing. And I think particularly when that thing that is seen in different ways has been out of necessity, really, the sole focus for all the people involved in it for a while, and then that changes for some of those people. I think it's, I, I think it, it just makes things very difficult. And also there's a whole lot of, and I can speak for Claire as well in this, because she does a similar thing to me. I think there's a whole load of your development as an artist that is then inaccessible to the people who are still full-time within the company and the structures of that company. And then you throw into the mix that it's just very difficult to get four people in the same place at the same time, no matter how much you've on paper committed to giving a certain amount of time to do that. And I was, I, I mean, I was certainly not the, the best at carving out and prioritising that time when there were other things that I was doing as well. So things were constantly sort of shifting. I think there was an element of that for everyone. Yeah, I think you know fundamentally becomes quite frustrating and then you know with that logistical frustration to expect people to then with the time that they can carve out to spend together to have a genuinely collaborative process as writers mm. when that's not really something they've ever done before you can't really expect that to work because there, there there isn't really a set of ground rules for how to do it and then it becomes about who wins it becomes about who gets their vision mm. And then, and then, of course, not everyone can win. Not everyone can get their vision there. So it becomes a kind of weird hodgepodge of like who who won what battle on what particular day, and who won the next one. And that's not really a fulfilling sort of. That's not really a fulfilling. Um, it becomes a grind. Yeah, I don't think I even wrote that much of the noise. You wrote quite big sections of the scenes. They were really good. Oh yeah. So again, they you go. wrote like a set. You wrote basically wrote the agent. Yeah, there were all. Yeah, well, there you go. There were whole sections of it that could have stood. 
yeah. and this is true of all of us that, that that could have stood on their own as yeah. shorter pieces that were kind of put together, but the edges weren't yeah. smoothed in. And I can, and again, we tried it again with "Am I Dead Yet?" and it, you know, it got to a point, and that was just you and me collaborating on the right, and it got to a point where I just took the show away and wrote it in the end, didn't I? Which like nearly brought us the closest you and me have ever come to a physical fight. So I don't remember there being a physical fight in the rehearsal room. Probably not about the writing, but again, it was. I remember that it was that show was a delight to perform once we'd made it. I loved touring it. Found making it really hard because it need. But luckily, one of the things we could do because you're a much better writer than I am. Well, well, no, I don't. I don't think it's that. I think it's your because me and Claire had started earlier to develop as writers, there were things that we could let go of and concentrate on the job of writing that you were not at the stage on your journey as a writer where you could let go of those things. Well, I'm not going to let you get away with uh, not allowing yourself to be recognised as the really brilliant talent that you are. But but anyway, you know, one of the things that... One of the reasons why Am I Dead Yet is a really good show... um, Because you wrote it. (laughs) ..is because it was written by one person. Yes. Ultimately, but because it was only you and me trying to collaborate on writing it, conflict causing and incredibly fucking frustrating as it was for both of us to accept that, look, I'm just going to have to write this. Mm. It's a lot easier to manage that between two people than it is between three. It is, and we were both in the room all the time with it, which I was going to come back to, which at least means that we share an understanding of how and why this has been written in the way that it's been written and what it's trying to do. What you were talking about a little before about leaving the company, not leaving the company, the point at which we move from, we're all around all of the things to do with the company all of the time. So we have a really uh, wholesome, fulfilling understanding of all elements of how that company runs. Yeah. Soon as you start having conversations where some people aren't in the room, it becomes what you describe it as inaccessible because mm. it's like, well, I don't know what this is anymore. And I think that applies to projects as well. The point at which any one of the collaborators in any project isn't in the room for that, you miss out. You can go, here's the page that came as a result of that, but this is the result of eight hours of work and conversation, which we can never unpack for you. Yeah. How do you remember it starting? What's the origin story from your perspective? I mean, I remember having a conversation with Louisa about, oh, wouldn't it be... I mean, but when we were in our second year, so when we kind of got into the groove of making theatre, you know, because the course that we did very much encouraged you to just make and make and make things. And we kind of discovered that we quite enjoyed it. And, like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to find a way of continuing to do this, you know, at the end of next year when our course finishes? That's how it started. I remember the conversation. That's cool. So you're saying that it was your and Louise's idea? Yeah. Yeah. Entirely mine and Louise's idea. It's your fault. Yeah. And then we had a conversation about, you know, who would be part of it. We asked about 10 or 12 other people who all said no. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of it, we just randomly went uh, into the department one day and picked... A tall the one, nearest, a short one. The nearest four people who were in the smoking area. Uh, and that's not true. No, that bit's not true. No. No. 
how did it actually beyond because lots of people have those conversations right particularly at uni particularly doing those sorts of courses yeah absolutely i think we i think we you know one of the brilliant things about our course was it encouraged us to kind of make and make and make and keep making mistakes actually and keep trying to find out what theatre you know theatre was to us and what the the usefulness of it might be to us and to other people but one of the things it didn't do was kind of instill any idea of it as a kind of practical vocational process Mm -hmm. so I guess those early conversations were characterized by probably dreaming a bit too big like i remember we used to walk around looking at like old derelict buildings and saying wouldn't it be great to put a theater in there and that wasn't really a practical proposition for four people in their late or six people in their late teens early 20s who had no access to any money or anything like that but we did have some conversations about we did make some phone calls but i i guess the process was about becoming realistic about what it would mean in order to be a self-supporting art creating entity and you know what that we slowly had to learn what that meant practically as well and why at that stage was that appealing to you rather than i don't know would it be a more clear or well-trodden route to become a writer and submit plays to the world absolutely no frame of reference for what it means to become a writer that felt completely out of reach i I didn't come from a a place where that was a possibility i didn't know anyone who did that it felt like there was a huge and unbridgeable gap between sort of me and people who were writers all i knew was messing around with my friends so that became like the idea of going like writing a play which i or writing of any kind which i you know i don't think i was you know i don't think i had i was very good at at that stage and sending it to somewhere like the royal court i wouldn't have even occurred to me that that was a possibility for me it felt like something that other people did moving to london i had no real interest in being an actor whatever that means again felt like like the idea of drama school or something like that or was completely uh, just didn't register and the idea of other ways of getting into it weren't really i couldn't imagine what those other ways were so the only thing i had was like a desire to not have a proper job a Hmm. you know an affection for theater and you know the group of People who'd been thrown together who'd become friends through making it. I think if I hadn't had that, I would have probably gone and done something else. I was so ill-equipped to engage with... I didn't understand anything about the structures of theatre. I didn't have any... um, Well, I wanted to make work, but I didn't have any ambition to be in those structures. And they felt really close off. And also, we were all, but particularly me, I think, living a life where... You know, when I graduated, I was 20 years old. And I was, you know, living in shared housing, had no money taking a shitload of you know drugs and drinking all the time you know i think the actual the actual ability to devote any of my life to finding out what it would mean to write a play and send it to someone or get into a writer's group was kind of really um not there and also you know we can't forget that even though email was a thing there wasn't any access to there wasn't any easy accessibility to finding any of that out Email was quite weird to everyone still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you couldn't just look at a website or anything. So I just didn't know how people did it. And if you couldn't see it, it wasn't there. What um, Paul was saying, basically just making it up as we went along. Yeah. 
Well, and what, one thing that was really fortunate was that we found ourselves in, luckily, a time when that was possible. I think that coincided, that sense of rootlessness and that sense of actually we just want to try and do it. It was really hard and took a lot of effort, but it also coincided with a time when we didn't pay for our education. That was a big thing. You know, I wasn't yeah. in debt. No. I had a job when I was at university. Mm. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd been instilled with a horror of going overdraw. I just wasn't in a place where I could have done what I did without having mm. a, a group of people to do it with. So this is the late 90s it all started, and then you... Mid-90s, probably. Okay, not, yeah, so your that second first year, conversation so would have been like 94, 95, yeah, okay. or something like that. So mid-90s, and there is a... We have, like, the, the law of the company... You know, the, as in the LORE law, is that 1997 was the, you know, the formalisation of that forever. But you then have made work with the company right up until, when was the last show that you were involved with? 2018? Is that how I did yet? 2015, I think. You made that in 2015. We toured it. For like... We toured it. We did it occasionally for, for over the next few years. So that's 20 years, best part of 20 yeah, years so. of your life where you've been doing lots of other things as well. Yeah, I think there was definitely a there was a kind of my my involvement with the company had become a lot more sporadic over the as you know my involvement with other things had increased. But mm. yeah, twenty years of, of being part of that. Yeah. So my question is, what are your favourite or your most vivid memories of that time? Because I was thinking about this on the way here to see you, and I was thinking you more than anyone else in the company. And over these years, I think I there are so many things that I have done, made, experienced, felt argued about with you more than anyone in the company in the context of unlimited i was thinking it could be really overwhelming to go there but i'm really interested to hear what let's start with the good ones <laughs> your favorite and <laughs> most vivid memories i mean we were really again we were really lucky in that i think the first show that we made and this is lucky for me as well as us as a company the first show we made that got anything like a kind of useful sort of attention and reaction and we worked very, you know, I, I wasn't the person who got it this. I, you know, we worked very hard to put it in a place where it could get that reaction and to decide to go to the Edinburgh Festival and things like that. Occurred at a time when there were opportunities if you got a show that got that kind of reaction to to travel. So I guess a lot of, you know, I... I You're talking about static. Right? Yeah, I'm talking about static, I which I happen to have written. And I wrote in like three days because we were going to do a different show and that all... I'm just going to sort of for the record go that was an extraordinary piece of writing and of its time in a way that there was nothing else happening at the moment and I think I would be a bit sad if you weren't to own and take that it was an extraordinary yeah but what it, what the doors it opened for us weren't necessarily just I totally stand by the writing but actually it was the contextualization of that show and putting it in the right places which is things that I really had nothing to do and with. how Paul never... directed it as well yeah I yeah yeah, was... yeah it was a it was a it was a beautifully done show and obviously and you and the Claire, performances were extraordinary yeah, Alex Kelly it was actually one of our earliest ever collaborations yes. Alex Kelly from Third Angel which was a beautiful design the talc on the floor in the squares yeah it, yeah the whole thing but was... we were looking at that happened at a time when i think things were very open and accessible in terms of being able to make contact with people in other places so a lot of my well this is just a long-winded way of saying a lot of my good memories i guess are to do with like i hadn't you know i hadn't really been on i hadn't really been abroad that much in my life i certainly hadn't been on many airplanes and and then suddenly i guess in our early to mid-twenties, we were 
you know, it's not like we were then suddenly like in this, you know, it's no, I think to be theater, fair, let's not, I mean, I mean, it was cool. We went to, it was cool. We, we did some, we did some really good stuff that I never thought I would be able to do. So I remember going to, uh, I remember being in Papua New Guinea. I mean, how the hell did that happen? I remember, got, I remember being in the Philippines. I remember being in, like going to Donetsk mm. in Ukraine. That was in the neutrino. In the early 2000s, you know, there's a, there's a whole, and Kiev, Kiev. Can we talk about, um, interesting to talk about both of those places but Papua New Guinea that is an experience and a trip that there is no other context in my life so that was you me and Claire flew out to Papua New Guinea at the invite of the boyfriend of the British High Commissioner yeah because he'd heard that we were in the Philippines at the invitation of the British Council performing at the Cultural Centre of the Philippines while we were in the area would we come out to Papua New Guinea Guinea and in the area being five hours five and a half hours flying time yeah. Talk a little bit. Tell, try and describe Papua New Guinea. Well, it's weird to... I mean, it's kind of odd to talk about. Like, you don't want to exoticise it, do you? But to suddenly be plunged into a place that, you know, where the normality for the people who live there is so different to your own is really odd and incredible. I mean, we went out, we were in the capital, Port Moresby, and then we went out to Buka, uh, which is an island in sort of almost way out to the east, almost in the Solomon Islands. It's kind of the easternmost province of Papua New Guinea, Bougainville province. And we went down onto Bougainville Island and we performed in all those places and we ran workshops in all those places. I think there was a genuine attempt on our part to have conversations with and be useful with all those places and the people in them. I'm not sure that taking a really dense, you know, short but really dense pair of intertwined monologues that was was what people needed. And I don't think in Bougainville that having a monologue, you know, having monologues talking about the sort of false intimacy of TV reporting of conflict in faraway places, which is what Static was about, was necessarily a thing that people needed to think about when they'd lived and were still living conflict. But I think there was a genuine attempt to be useful on the part of the people who invited us there. People were incredibly generous in terms of providing time for our work mm-hmm. and understanding what we were trying to do and just meeting us where we were and just talking. I'm interested in that because what was it like for Because me and Claire are in the show. And just for anyone that might not know, the show is me and Claire in really smart black suits, standing quite still, just speaking directly to the audience and not to each other for about 40 minutes. Which in the context of how and where we were doing it in those places in Papua New Guinea, like in Bougainville, in a packed out, dilapidated barn in the middle of a field with people of all ages in there looking. I remember looking out and going, how has this happened? What are we doing? What was it like for you sat watching with with the audience watching us do that? I mean, it's hard because I would have I, 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 I would have hated there's part of me that would have hated watching it and always did, no matter where I was, not because of the work, but just because of the like horrific feeling of, oh, my God, I wrote these words. I've always hated why you being the, in the audience the looking at and these, catch you and see you with your hands literally in your head in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then, stop doing that. But then in, in those circumstances, in circumstances like that, there's a real kind of, wow, what is going on here? Mm. Like, what worlds are meeting here? And what does one world think it is giving to the other? Like, why are we here? What is happening? Mm. What is being thought about us? What are we bringing and thinking that is both accurate and inaccurate? 
to this and what can everyone who happens to be in this room at this point in the planet, I'm sort of thinking a room in that case didn't even have walls, but you know, all these people in this room, in this planet, on this planet, in this specific spot on this planet, what can we do for each other? And how can we repay that kind of, that really generous attention? And I think that, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's even about the gradient of privilege between those the, the people in that particular room and, and, and how, you know, obviously we can move much more easily through the world than someone who, who actually lives in the place where we are at that moment for all sorts of reasons. I think that's part of it. But I think that's, I think it's about engaging in good faith with the people who have bothered to turn up. Mm. If they're engaging with you in good faith, which obviously most of the time most people are. These are formative experiences of going out into a world that you had had no access to before and quite suddenly being in places that are extremely different from you. And that's something that you've continued to do throughout your career. Should we call it a career? No. What do you want to call it? Series of series of decisions that felt like the right thing to do at the time. That's the basic criteria. I like the word career, because it's exactly that. Isn't it? Your career, literally careering from one thing to the next. Yeah, I what suppose I do next? so. This? <laughs> I mean, the guiding thing for me and the thing that I always, you know, if people ask me, I always say it's like, it's just what happens when you ask yourself the question, what is the point of this about every single project that you do? And if, if the answer is I can't see the point of this, then don't do it. So if you use that as a kind of guiding principle, then you end up building a series of you build a, a, a series of events that you can draw a line through that you were part of, um, series of projects. But I would never think of it as a career because a career, even though it does have that meaning, I know of bouncing from you know wildly from one thing to another. It's actually much more we internalise the idea of it as a progression, don't mm. we? And usually, progression has some kind of upward trajectory, and I think. If you internalise that too much and you start talking about it as your career, then you start to close off interesting possibilities. Mm. And I think I think it's not a question of it going up and down. It goes from place to place. Mm. And the decision to go to the next place, whether that is, you know, working with a huge organisation on a high-profile thing or whether it's working with a just a bunch of other people who are trying to work something out in the middle of nowhere for like three days... Or, you know, you, you're guided by whether each thing has a point and the logistics of having to make sure you're never in the same, uh, two different places at the same time. And that's that's much more useful, I think. I think, think it's something that you, and I think generally Unlimited, have always been very, I was going to say good at, but that's not right, sort of committed to, which is not making decisions about what to do based on what you feel should is the next thing to get you to the next level like you're saying this upward progression it's not about well the next thing we want to do is to go into the west end and or all that careerism that happens in our sector and industry i'm going to go to this theater and be the artistic director there so that i can become the artistic director here and it's just yeah if you want to do that then you can do that and then you can go and do something else in a way the artistic directors that i've really respected and work with the people who are doing that job at that time because it is the right thing because they can bring something to it and it is the right thing for them to do and then maybe went off and did something else you know we internalize 
this idea of hierarchy I talk to writers about this all the time because writers we've got you know there's this huge thing of like if you're you know you're a writer because you're untrammeled by the the needs of normal society you can stand outside it and you can you know and there's there's part of that that idea of yourself as a free spirit or someone who doesn't have you know in the basic sense a nine-to-five job but actually that's like that covers over a whole load of internalized hierarchy I think a whole load of it that really stops writers exploring the things that they want to explore because they explore the things that they think they should because you've got this internalized idea that you start off in a company environment and you go to this theater, mm. this theater, this theater, this theater, or or whatever, or you you go into different media. It, it, it just feels it feels like you don't you don't ever want to be you know running on someone else's rails and at the same time telling yourself you're a free spirit. That seems mm. like a cognitive dissonance that's not really very useful to kind of hold in your head as an artist. Is there anything you would do differently in the context of Unlimited? Would you do it again? Would you do it differently? I mean, would I do it again knowing what I know now? I don't know. Would, uh, I mean, what's, yeah, the, I what's, the, what's the what are the specifics of the question? <laughs> like, if you were to run back time so that I was the person that I was then doing what I was doing then, and, yeah, I mean, inevitably I would do it again because I wouldn't know not to. The question is really, I mean, God... I suppose there's part of it. There's two ways of yeah addressing it. Would you? Would was it, was I, would it fun do... enough? Was it fun enough that you would choose to do that again, or is it like fuck that shit? If I was going to go back and get that opportunity again, I'd be that long long distance. I mean, if I was to go up. back, look. <laughs> if I was to go back and do it again, knowing what I know now, I would do it differently, of course. What would you do differently then? Let's do that one. Um, rather than if I was again. to if I was to advise someone else whether they were going to do it or not, knowing what I know now, <laughs> I don't know. I mean. It's a difficult question, isn't it? Because I like, I, I stand by, and I like, I hope that I'm proud of most of the work that I've made, and that's the work with Unlimited or, or outside of Unlimited. Are there choices I would make differently? Yeah, but then I will be a fundamentally different person. I, I find it really hard. I, I don't know. I, I find questions like this really hard. Okay. I don't, it just doesn't work like that when you're making art or when you're doing stuff there isn't a, there isn't you know you realize it's like when you're writing a script you realize that every part is dependent on every other part and yeah. to change one part is to change all of it so you know the idea of is there a bit that you would do differently naturally suggests that if you were to change that bit you you absolutely don't know what relationship any of the other bits will mm. be in or even if they exist at all and i think it's probably bound up for me in like you know, it would be 15 years ago this year, you know, I'd, I stopped drinking, I stopped taking drugs and there's, there's, you know, it was mainly for me, it was drinking. It was a huge, huge kind of life-threatening sort of addiction for me. And it's very tempting, I think, when you're in the early stages of, like, extricating yourself from that, although I don't believe you're ever truly, you know, not addicted to something, even if you're not doing it. There's a real temptation to think about, like, would my life be different if I hadn't spent the ages of, you know, 14 to 34, you know, I mean, essentially fucking drunk most of the time. You know, where would I be? What, what fucking heights would I have scaled without the, you know, without that constant 
you know, need to maintain that addiction, kind of dragging me back. Uh, and actually, I think what you realise, hopefully, I think what I've realised is there isn't a there isn't an alternative life that you would have lived had you never done it. You would have still been fundamentally the same person. Yes, you wouldn't have been fucking drunk all the time. You might have gone. You might have got running more. I don't know. You might have you might have lived a healthier lifestyle. But fundamentally, doing that for all the fucking damage it did, this now is the result of it. And I don't think it's a thing that can just be unplugged. You know, it is it is the reason why I'm here and why I've done all this work that I'm immensely fucking proud of. Mm. Uh, you know, as much the reason of any as as anything. You know, that awareness that I did that that the life that I lived while I was doing that, the work that we made while I was doing that. You know, I made some fucking spectacular work when I'm when I was kind of in that part of my life. I, I, it just feels like an unhealthy. Mm-hmm kind of frame to put on things is like are you you know what would you go back and change well who the fuck knows man um there are very specific instances of where i you know i I behaved in ways that like that i'm not proud of in terms of i remember when we went to la once and i got (coughs) i just drank all the way there on the flight without realizing that the expectation was that i had to drive when i arrived at higher car when i arrived (laughs) And of course, I didn't drive it drunk. You had to drive it, and you were you were rightfully very angry about that. And we had a six months old a six month old child with us. Oh if God. I was to go back again, would I have somehow tried to find the fortitude not to drink that free booze on the flight, or actually, more likely, would I have found the fortitude to say, uh, "Listen, it's free booze all the way on this twelve hour flight." There's no way. I am not the person yeah. who needs to be driving when we get there. I don't know how we didn't think that. Well, but again, we weren't communicating very well about that kind of thing at the time. Yeah, yeah of course, there are really specific things where, well, also, where I, you just think, oh, I can't. put people in a terrible position no, or I made myself dig, quite miserable. And also, you but can't the, dig yourself out over that, and I don't think anyone else would. And in the moment, maybe there was like, well, that's annoying. Well, that's what I'm saying. saying. You, you look back and you think there are things, and but even something like that, it's like... I don't know. I don't know what was dependent on that moment. We didn't have any control over It's a classic thing of, like, if I'd I'd somehow managed to turn up sober and driven us all to the hotel, maybe I'd have driven us into a bus. (laughs) Who knows? You know, so that, I really hear you, and you can't change that, because you can't, and also, I'm so proud of you, and I know that you'll hate me saying that, but I think the journey that you went through to make that massive it's not a decision because i'm sure you saw every day oh, let's not decision. talk yeah no, let's not talk about it, but i think okay to, but what i mean about that is, but what i'm saying is i'm using that as an example of yeah. why asking those questions i'll tell you but a there was useful, a huge learning experience for all of us i think because i learned a useful what, way what what that was a useful way to think about that question that you asked which is no i probably wouldn't because one of the things it allows me to do and i'm not talking about drinking now because mm. one of the things that i do is i would never if someone starts a conversation with me about the way that they're feeling and, and mm. I'm totally open to that conversation but I, I would never so I'm not talking about advice that I would give to mm-hmm. other people but one of the things that having made all those terrible mistakes that we made 
out of which we could sit here and there's probably a three-hour conversation where we like we talk about the things that went wrong is when people are in a similar situation i think this is a writer as well completely independent of being a company person you know one of the things that i say to writers is i have no authority to tell you how to write what i'm here for is to have a conversation with you about you finding the way that you write I am not better at that than you. I am not better at writing than you. It is not about that. But the only difference between us usually is that I have been doing this longer than you have. And one of the useful things for you about the fact that I've been doing it that long is I have made a lot of fucking mistakes. This isn't about you not making mistakes, but if I can save you a bit of time by using a terrible decision I made in the past that I can see you might be thinking about making a version of, you know, making a version of a similar decision and we can talk about that, then I might save you a bit of time. There are no shortcuts to get into where you want to be, but you can probably close off a few general side roads you know, that can keep you moving in a useful direction for you. So really... Yeah, no, I don't regret any of the mistakes I've made because they're actually useful for other people. And actually, what have I got to fucking complain mm. about? I'm really, you know, I was reading, a, I picked a book off a shelf the other day that I'd written. You know, there's a whole fucking section in there of the, oh, I can't remember. Is it like you picked it off and went, oh, it's one of mine. <laughs> well, I didn't, yeah, I mean, I kind of knew I was doing it. I didn't oh, randomly here's another one. <laughs> But I, uh, it was a show that I made about, I wrote about three or four years ago. And I thought, fucking hell, it did what we wanted it to. And I'm fucking proud of it, you know. So cool. the price of being maybe slightly happier earlier on in my life might be that that work doesn't exist. So there you go. I don't, I don't know. I'm not prepared to take that gamble, even theoretically. Well, the good news is, is that it doesn't look like that whole time traveling technology is going to arrive during our lifetimes. Well, that's so good. It can remain a thought experiment. What is one thing you learned specifically from your experience of setting up or working with Unlimited that you'd offer as advice to anyone thinking of or in the early stages of setting up their own company? <laughs> I remember when we were at uni, in that second year, to bring us around full circle, mm. just after I'd had that conversation with, with Louisa about, oh, maybe we should think about doing this. John, is he called Fox? I can't remember. From welfare, The guy who ran Welfare State came to do a, a really great workshop with us. And he was a lot older. He was obviously, he must have been in his, he'd, he'd been doing it for decades anyway. And he'd got this incredible company and they did this huge outdoor kind of socially engaged work. I mean, a lot of people listening to this, if, if it indeed ever gets listened to, will know who Welfare State mm. were. And he'd run this great workshop and he was just like, and I kind of sidled up to him afterwards and I was a bit in awe of him. And I said, have you got any advice for, and he just looked at me and said, get insurance. <laughs> literally all he said and i've always remembered that because i think he was quite grumpy about it but he was like and if you look at the context of the kind of work he did obviously insurance was completely fucking necessary and indeed it is a legal requirement if you're a theater company so i that's it that's it get insurance no it's um that stuck with me join a union i think the thing that i would take from that would be like we've been a member of itc the independent theater council from the earliest days 
because actually it is really useful having representation and someone says, yeah, are, we, think, are yeah. we doing this right? Yeah, no, don't, don't, do it, don't do it like that. But I suppose what that get insurance comment opens <laughs> up is like, sort out the basic shit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that couldn't, that doesn't have to be about like, that doesn't have to be about things like insurance. And if you want to make a theatre company that doesn't have any constitution or whatever, and there's a group of people making, just making work together and just putting it on in sort of guerrilla venues, mm-hmm. you know, and you want to, you want to operate in a kind of quasi legal way or indeed a completely illegal way. That's not up to me. So it's not about saying sort out the fucking financial side of things and company government governance. It's like just have a whatever the basics mean to you. Sit down and have a think and be open and transparent about how you want to do what you do, and be prepared to modify that. But try it and stick to it and modify it as you go along. And it's a very similar thing to writing. I, you know, there's a stage you go through as a writer where. I mean, some people want to write really beautifully structured plays, and that's great, and you've got a whole classical kind of model of how to do that, and people still want to do that, and it does have value, and it is it's brilliant. And if you're good at that and you want to do that, that's one thing. But I think a lot of people become writers because... Again, it's about that thing of, you know, kidding yourself that you're not, you know, you're not you're not one of those people who does a nine to five or whatever, but you wanna you wanna be kind of iconoclastic and throw away the kind of structures of how it's always been done and that's a really fucking great and laudable impulse and i had it myself you know you want to you want to just strike out into the fucking unknown and you want to make your you want to make your work that ignores the conventions of kind of tradition and hierarchy and the implied social power relationships of you know whatever model of doing things you've grown up with and that's great. And then you go out, you say, I will divest myself of that. And you go out into the world and you make your fucking what you write it down in a kind of thing of white hot fire. And it is just a cloud of fucking shit. And it's it's vague and it's like it tilts at a kind of epic poetry or it tries to get to the heart of a human experience. And it's it's just absolute toss and that's not because you're a bad writer it's like you haven't become the writer that you are yet and in a way it's a stage but what it is it's about mistaking that freedom for that void of taking away the frameworks for freedom yeah and actually if you're gonna throw all that stuff away and i would encourage anyone to fucking try doing that if you're gonna throw all that stuff you've been given away it is incumbent on you to fucking, you are then responsible for putting a framework in its place that is all yours. And that framework has to be incredibly fucking well-crafted. The basics of that framework have to be there because you can't just go out into a void. There's a brilliant episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes up to the space station. Mm. And I talk about it all the time. And in the space station, there's a, I think it's called a formarium or a terrarium, but it's got it's a, it's a kind of a glass wall and behind it there's some earth and there's a load of fucking ants in it. And due to some hijinks and clumsiness, because he's Homer fucking Simpson, he smashes it in zero gravity and all the ants float out into the body of the space station and they're all making this chittering noise, talking to each other, and you get a subtitle underneath and what the ants are saying is, freedom, freedom, horrible freedom. And that's that's kind of the position you've put yourself in if you've decided to, like 
throw everything away and go, whether it's start a theatre company, be a writer, make some art. If you want to do it in a way when it hasn't been done before, you don't want to be, you know, you go out into that freedom. You've got to put something in that that is yours. And that could be about saying, right, we need some insurance. Or it could be about saying, like, listen, when we talk about an idea, that idea isn't owned by either of us, and if it's two of you or any of us, and this is the process by which we will look at it and change it. Or this is the point where someone takes, where X person takes ultimate responsibility for Y. Or, you know, it doesn't all have to be sort of collective and you can you can do it how you want but i think what i would say is there is a responsibility to be clear with each other about what the basics of those frameworks are yeah it's beautiful don't just float about in the fucking void like the ants i can't believe that i turned that into <clears throat> join the itc <laughs> oh join yeah well join the itc's part of it if that's important if that's the, um, Probably Something, a far more practical use than anything I said. Well, no, so I'll give, I'll give you this. One of the things that I carry with me and I repeat often to people is something you said in a company meeting when I think there was still the six of us all working together. And it had got, it was in the office, there was a conversation, I can't remember what the conversation was about, but anyway, it got a bit heated. It got a little bit personal, I think, and everyone was getting upset with each other, which I think became fine because we're such, we're all such good friends, but also that's not healthy. But I remember you saying, just because this is difficult doesn't mean it has to be hard. And it's like a nuanced difference, but it's really important. It really carries with me. It's like, this is something we can definitely work out. It doesn't need to be hard. Yeah. for us and I always thought that was a really wise insightful and beautiful thing and it's really carried it with me since then to go in all processes of all things that I do so there's that as well there is that yeah I mean th- th- it's things should be difficult it's worth doing but difficult mm. is not bad. I mean difficult is maybe you difficult said, maybe you said bad or but hard I remember the no 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 just because it's just because it's difficult doesn't mean it has to be hard I think yeah. is yeah it is a it is a good distinction to make well done well done that younger version of me going around the world saying things that I can't even fucking well, remember I also remember you saying it in quite a aggressive way <laughs> <laughs> because we were all in that moment going seriously we need to stop being a dick well um, you know, sometimes <laughs> Sometimes people just need to be told. But you've always been very good at staying level. Is there anything else that you would like to, you've always thought, wondered, or would like to make sure is included in whatever this is, you know, that you haven't had the opportunity to? No. I haven't had had any old scores that I want to settle. I was right. wasn't the question. (laughs) But yeah. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris. If you've listened to any of the other episodes, you'll have noticed that the music in this one is different and that there's a lot more underscore. That is thanks to our sound designer, Oliver Spooner, who composed all that music and was inspired to include it for this episode because Chris is one of his godparents and Ollie loves him very much. In the next episode, I'll be talking to the last of my co-founders, Claire Duffy, who was the first unlimited person I met and made a show with and the last as we served together as co-artistic directors until she left the company in 2021. This track you're listening to right now is by the brilliant African Boy and was made for our 2023 collaboration with Upswing Ancient Futures. 
From the 26th of January 2024, you can listen to the full soundtrack for Ancient Futures and all of our other shows that had original music composed for them by searching up Unlimited Theatre on whichever streaming platform you use. This track is called The Shadow Bridge. When I stop speaking, it is going to drop into another track from Ancient Futures called Training, which is... 